Welcome to the Man Up to Cancer podcast. I'm Trevor Maxwell. I'm a stage four colon cancer survivor, and I've got a message for other men. You don't have to go through this alone. What does it mean to man up to cancer? It means reaching out instead of isolating. It means having the courage to accept help along the way. To me, manning up isn't just about being tough. It's about knowing that we're stronger and smarter as a pack than we are as lone wolves. All right, everybody in Cancerland, welcome to the Man Up to Cancer podcast. I am so pumped because I have wanted to have this man on the show for a long time. Um, and then, you know, uh, life has gotten in the way, chemo, treatment, all that stuff. But I'm feeling darn good today, so I'm super excited. Dr. Charles Rogers. This guy is a rock star in the field of cancer health disparities and inequities in men's health. He is a, for all of you guys out there in the wolf, wolf pack who are, you know, not too science background, I'm, we're going to just get all the sciencey stuff out of the way, then we're going to talk. But he is a behavioral scientist and master certified health education specialist. I mean, his, his wall is probably full of degrees because, I mean, I could just go on. But So, Dr. Rogers, thanks for joining me. It's an honor to have you on the show. Thanks for having me. Good, sir. So, yeah. So, welcome. So, let me just give a, a little bit of an intro. Dr. Rogers is a tenure-track assistant professor at the University of Utah's School of Medicine, where he founded the Men's Health Inequities Research Lab. Just last year, he also founded the Colorectal Cancer Equity Foundation, which focuses on removing obstacles to equity among African-American men and other underrepresented populations by increasing awareness of colorectal cancer. There is a lot more, but this is a 45-minute show, so I'm just going to stop right there for now. <laughs> Man, it's so good. Like, we've, um, you know, we, you've been on my radar for such a long time, and you're doing such impactful work, and I, I've been um, just a fan for a long time, so it's really cool to have you be on the podcast. Awesome. It's good to be here. So let's start with this health equity. So health equity 101. What is for those for those of people who are following this show, a lot of them are maybe confused about it. Could you talk from your perspective? What is health equity? Why is everybody talking about it? Why are all the health and health tech companies claiming they're all about it? Awesome. Awesome. Great. First question, Trevor. So initially, I think it's key to make it clear for our listeners to know that to understand the difference between equality and equity. So equality, equality generally refers to equal opportunity and the same levels of support for all segments of society, whereas equity goes a step further and involves offering varying levels of support dependent upon the need to achieve greater fairness to reach an equal outcome. So if we go you know, step further and look at health equity, the, Center, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, better known as the CDC, they know that health equity is achieved when everybody has the opportunity to attain their full health potential and no one is deprived from achieving this potential because of their social position or other socially determined circumstances. So you think about inequities in health, these are reflected in the differences of the length of life, the quality of life, the rates of disease, you know, for this conversation, we're focusing primarily on CRC, disability, and death, as well as severity of disease and access to treatment. So in my opinion, um, Trevor, I agree with many experts that everyone is talking now about health equity due to the tsunami effect of George Floyd's death, powering a continuous and historically significant wave of activism among white Americans that has had wide ranging policy and governmental implications. 
I'll also add that the pandemic has reminded America time and time again that racial and ethnic minority populations remain disproportionately affected by COVID and several other longstanding health disparities. Let me chime a little bit more or let me pause for this so you can just Yeah, talk no, let's, let's just digest that a little bit. I mean, perfectly said. And thanks for that explanation. It is, these terms are difficult to kind of wade into when we talk about equity or equality or um, disparities, that kind of thing. So I think that was excellent. Um, so now we're coming up on how long ago was the George Floyd murder? That was in 2020. So we're, we're two, we're two years going on an anniversary of that. And so this, obviously this topic is not new, but it does seem like in the, in, like you said, in these past couple of years, there has been a, just a galvanization or a, a rise in, in seeking this and in pushing for it and calling for it. And, and now you're starting to see response among some of the uh, institution and establishment that has, you know, maybe talked the talk for a long time, but hasn't really walked the walk. I agree. I agree. And unfortunately, you know, these several institutions and companies and individuals have been extremely performative when it comes to their efforts to show they value black lives, for instance, right. or to help equity significant for them. Yet at the end of the day, um, I agree with the words of a very famous interview. I can't think of uh, his name right now, but at the end of the day, I believe what you show me, not what you say. Mm, yes, <laughs> absolutely. So, so that's kind of our starting point. And you have really emerged as a national and international leader in calling for health equity. Specifically, you know, you do have a focus area in colorectal cancer. Let's lay some of the facts out on the table. What are some of the facts that people need to know about black people and CRC and then specifically black men and CRC? I think you're going to open some eyes here. Yeah. So with black women, black women have a 31 percent higher chance of dying from colon cancer or CRC um, than a white female. Um, In terms of actually getting CRC, black women have 18 percent higher chances of getting it. But on the flip side, with black men, they have a 21 percent higher chance of getting CRC and a 44 percent higher chance of dying from it. Um, You know, I've been looking at black men for most of my career because, you know, which has been over a decade because black men have the highest chance of getting CRC and dying from it compared to everybody, males and females. And if you just look at death rates alone from CRC, black men have had the highest chances of you know, I've gone from CRC for more than two, for more than two decades. And let's just let that sink in for a little bit here, people. And I know, so actually, let me back up a second. I know the issues of race and racial inequality and these things are oftentimes difficult to discuss. Sometimes they're difficult to listen to people. You know, I think there's a lot of people who absolutely want those discussions, but a lot of our listeners might be thinking, man, this is a tough topic, but this is crucial people. Like this is this is crucial. Like we're looking at facts here. Like Dr. Rogers is a fact-based <laughs> type of individual. And so what he's telling us is that black men have the highest death rate and the shortest length of survival of any racial group for most cancers, males, including CRC. Males and females. Males and females. Sorry, males and females. They are less frequently enrolled in cl- clinical trials, less likely to be offered genetic testing, palliative care, other critical supports. There is just... So anyone who thinks, you know, I mean, first of all, anyone who thinks we're living in a post-racial America is just, maybe you should just tune out of the show right now, but, or maybe stick around and learn some things. But like what we're saying here is there is a stark difference between someone, between the outcome just for someone like me, because of my, the color of my skin in 2022 versus a black person who gets any type of cancer. So thank you for just putting that out there. Is there any other facts, you know, on the outset that you need people to know about? 
Yeah, so, you know, CRC is expecting to be the leading cause of cancer-related deaths by 2030 for the age group 20 to 49. Um, and so building on that, um, my team found that men ages 15 to 49 in 232 hotspot counties of early onset CRC had a 24% higher risk of dying from CRC than those living in hotspot, non-hotspot areas. So many of these counties, about 92%, were in the south, followed by the southern to central Appalachian area, um, the southern Mississippi River area and eastern Texas, as well as the coastal southeast and eastern ridges, regions of Virginia and North Carolina. When we adjusted for differences in smoking rates, um, the, the risk for death for those living in the hotspots was 12% higher. Um, also, Trevor, we found that black men had a 31% higher risk of dying from CRC than white men in these hotspots. This is unacceptable. Absolutely unacceptable. And your work is shining a light on this in a way that I don't know has even been taken on before. Um, so I want to get into a bunch of this research stuff. It's really cool, but you know, I also want to ask you a lot of other questions, but, and so I didn't have this on the list, but I, and so I'm sorry, but, um, identifying those hot spots and like, and seeing where, you know, was that for colorectal cancer you're talking about? Yes. Yes, sir. So was that, your work that identified those or was there prior work that identified the hotspots and then you did some more digging or how did that work? So prior work set the stage in terms of identifying hotspots where they identified hotspots for 50 plus. Um, but you know, you know, I, you know, as I've been in this space, I saw early on, not only that the screening age is reckoned to be 45 for black people as early as 2008, but I saw also that, you know, in terms of early onset, that being CRC before age 50, it was on the rise at about 3% every year for since not just the mid nineties. You know, and I've known so many individuals, you included, that have thrived through disease as well as, um, you know, we've lost to the disease. You know, and that's even a whole other conversation if you want to frame it as lost to it. Um, but, you know, you understand what I'm trying to get at. Yeah. That's made me um, try to be very strategic about bringing more awareness to this issue. So I partnered with one of my mentees in um, Georgia who had did some work in terms of identifying hotspots for breast cancer disparities. Yeah. And I said, hey, let's do this for early onset so we can hopefully bring more attention to this problem, get more funding for this space, um, you know, see if we can just have that drive the narrative of lowering the screening age, et cetera. And, you know, so we're making progress, but there's still so much work to do. And you know that personally. Absolutely. And again, I apologize because I had to, I do have an outline of questions, but there's one thing that pops up in my brain, which is, can you talk a little bit about, so those are the stats, like that's the, it's unacceptable, this gap, but you know, can you tell us some of the fundamental reasons why this gap exists in your mind? Like there, I'm, and I'm sure that there's many. Yeah. So, so there's no one thing that we can point to. It's, it's definitely a complex, um, you know, numerous factors that are contributing. And so if we think about the things that increase your risk, such as like being obese, not being physically active, smoking, you know, you know, diets that are high in consumption of, um, you know, red meat, processed, processed meat, foods, yeah. yep. et cetera. Like if you look at black people, just close of our culture and like just how we are as people, we tend to top out in those areas. So some people argue that those things that are, are change that can be changeable from our behavior could be increasing our risk, but we can't just leave it there. We have to look at like other things that I've studied, such as masculinity. You know, I've looked at, um, you know, lack of knowledge. I've looked at social support. So for instance, if your wife is for chloride cancer screening, more likely you will get colorectal cancer screen because of that. Um, I've looked at other social determinants of health that we can't take for granted, such as like if you have a job, if you have health insurance, 
you know, um, you know, where you work, et cetera. Like all those things are matter and have to be considered. And we and we have to consider other things, too, whether it be medical mistrust or poor patient provider communication <laughs> or racism, not race, which is a social construct. There's so many different things that there is no one thing that's contributing. Um, yeah. Yeah. Go ahead. No, that's perfect. And and, and so that's what I was thinking, too. And, I, and I'm I'm glad you finished up with talking about that, like that. So the mistrust piece. And also, let's let's just say what it is like the medical establishment, you know, these huge institutions, I don't think that there's been an intentional outreach there to, to reach underserved and, and, and populations such as people of color in the United States to, and to really care about them in terms of outcomes. That's something that historically I don't think has been done. Yeah. So, so, there, so there's been, you know, some progress, you know, you know, we think about FQHCs, which stands for federally qualified health centers, you know, those institutions usually do reach underserved populations, you know, those being black, Somali, um, et cetera, those who usually top the charts in terms of not getting screened. So there is some work out, out good, there, good. but to me, it's still, it's still not enough work because we're not making enough progress in these disparities. So when we, if we even look at these numbers, I shared earlier, um, um, Trevor, like for me, it's a black man. I have a 44% higher chance of dying from colon cancer than you, too, than you do. When I first started this work over a decade ago, that number was 52. So like, yeah, we've made some progress, but that's still a huge gap in my opinion. Right. And I just saw, you know, and, and so there are, you're tackling this issue. There's others tackling this issue. I just saw a press release from Stand Up to Cancer the other day about some pretty large grants going out to, um, I think it was in the Boston area and the LA area for um, nonprofit organizations that are are working to do outreach in underserved communities. So, you know, having a big ally like that coming in with some big bucks that that's helpful. Um, so, so, anyways, I I just get excited by the work that you're you're doing. So, let, but let's step back a little bit and get a little personal here. I want you to tell us a little bit about your upbringing. Like, wh- where did you grow up? Were you ambitious as a kid? Um, academics, extracurricular activities, sports, like what was Dr. Rogers like as a kid? Yeah, so I'm originally from North Carolina, rural North Carolina, where like I grew up around chicken houses. So like for people who don't know what chicken house is, um, if you are a a meat eater and you think about going vegetarian, this may help. So chicken houses (laughs) is like this big old, like this huge long greenhouse that it has chickens with just on the ground eating and pooping. And eating oh, and yeah. pooping yeah. until they're <laughs> put in a truck and transferred to a processing center to be killed and put in your local uh, food lion, uh, pick any other grocery store that you have in your area. So, like, that's yeah. where I'm from, where there's chicken houses, deer hit you all year round, not just during deer season, it's pitch black at night. Um, and so growing up in the rural South, like I was always around health disparities, but I didn't know. So, you know, like losing one of my uncles at a massive heart attack at 55 and my aunt to CRC stage four, you know, she fought it for eight years and we'll talk about that later, I'm sure. Yeah. Um, but you know, her, you know, getting diagnosed at 52 and, you know, grandma having breast cancer at a young age and like other people die from cancer. Like I had no idea what it was until I left that space. You know, Um, so that's, you know, definitely where I'm from, where education was a non-negotiable, like academics were always key, you know, and, you know, I I learned early on that to make good money where I'm from, you either sold drugs or you worked in a factory. And I didn't really want to do one of those, either one of those. So I really got very serious with education. And that's why how you introduced me earlier. I got a lot of degrees, man. And so the key thing is using those degrees to help people is what I've been really focused on doing. So who was it in your life or was it multiple people that, that really challenged you to 
avoid those other tracks you talk about and, and really pursue your education and take that where you wanted to take it. Yeah, it was definitely, you know, my mom and my, my grandma. So my mom, till this day, is still a workhorse. That's where I get my work ethic from. And then my grandma was one of those individuals who was big about sacrificing. And I'm, I'm, I'm you know, I'm that as, you know, that as well. But she always, both of them, I've always valued education. Um, and so those are definitely two of my um, key motivators in terms of my, uh, my upbringing. And were you fairly well-rounded or did you just focus on school or did, what were your activities? Oh. Oh yeah, so I, I I was very 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 around it. So um, I've been a percussionist for a long time. Nice. Such th- such that um, I was in the drum line in undergrad um, at North Carolina State University, and so we actually had the largest drum line in the ACC. So you know um, that also helps having a great team. You would see me various places across the country at bowl games and football games, and that's where I actually even got more disciplined with like work ethic because the drum line is always the hardest working group in the band right you know what i'm saying like we practice twice as hard and and everything and so i learned a lot not only in leadership but t- but teamwork as well awesome so I, I started off by telling people like some fancy words around what you do maybe this is a good time for you to just say in layman's terms like for someone who's not doesn't have a background in research maybe doesn't have a background in academics in general can you like for the people in our howling place group can you explain what you do in simple terms yeah, so an MD, which stands for like medical doctor, that's what most people are familiar with. So that's like you go to doctor, you see this person. So I'm not that type of doctor. I'm a PhD in terms of like a, a doctor of philosophy. And so how I explain it to people, have I have I have my mom explain it to people in North Carolina? Yeah, I'm is a I'm a type of doctor that tries to help you not go to the doctor in the first place, <laughs> or if you do go, you're not in as bad of shape as you could be. And that's by studying patterns and health and, and doing doing research around pu- public health issues spot on you're spot okay. on you're right so like i was saying so very rare that someone would get into this line of work by accident usually public health researchers and advocates have some sort of personal story or background that led them to where they are i i believe that your your aunt's story is part of your why that motivates you to do, do the work that you do is that right very, very true. So growing up in North Carolina, I never heard about CRC. I only heard about prostate cancer for black men and um, breast cancer for black women. Well, in the summer of 2009, my family was, you know, uh, having a family reunion during numerous things to increase your risk for CRC, eating hot dogs with your processed foods. That, um, that was my upbringing as well. <laughs> yeah, consuming uh, alcohol. Uh, smoking, uh, various types of items. They also increase your risk, um, but also doing some things to decrease your risk, such as being physically active by dancing, yes. cha-cha slide, electric slide, cupid shuffle, you name it. So we had noticed that my aunt Joanne had lost a lot of weight, but we just figured like, okay, you know, maybe she's eating better, et cetera. You fast forward about three or four months, and just like many of um, individuals I know, she's misdiagnosed four to six times from two major healthcare systems. Oof. And so then, you know, we find out she has stage four CRC. You know, for those listeners who may not be as familiar with CRC in terms of stage, you catch it early, um, you know, stage zero, one, 90 plus percent chance of survival. Right. Stage four, like my aunt at that time, she had a less than 10 percent chance. Yep. So and so, you know, she was able to thrive through this disease from eight years for eight years where I saw it go from, you know, her colon to spread into her, you know, her lungs and spread into her brain and her getting brain surgery and coming out of brain surgery saying, I'm going to the Vegas, the family vacation in Vegas next month and going. (laughs) 
you know what I'm saying? And like, you know, it, you know, her being bedridden to her having a colostomy to her living on her own again. It's like I learned so much. And so like when I do have the time to give my talks, you always see me start with that, yeah. you know, because like with her, she was diagnosed at 52. And so like she wasn't even she wasn't even recommended. She wasn't even diagnosed at the recommended screen at age of 50. You know what I'm saying? And we have to think about other factors in terms of like her maybe not having good health insurance, her maybe not having, um, you know, good providers to say like, oh, you know, I know that most people are recommended at 50, but black people, you know, maybe yeah. should consider it earlier because they get it at a more advanced stage. They get it earlier, et cetera. But, you know, that's that's a that's a major driver behind what I do, Trevor. And another driver is those disparities that I mentioned earlier. Like, that's not fine. That's not OK with me. It never has been and it never will be. So. Absolutely. So circling on that, that issue of health equity. So awareness is one thing, you know, that performative piece you talk about of, of people, you know, saying they're all about it, but show me, right. So action is another. So what are the tools that you are using to fight the, the racial equity problem in the cancer space? Yeah. So, you know, my, 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 my first tactic is definitely community engagement. I always try to go where people are. So that's why you see my work in barbershops. You you know, you'll see me, um, you know, prior COVID DC at the Capitol, like you'll see me anywhere where people are, at, you know, being strategic about trying to make a difference um, to build on that is advocacy. And so like not only going where the people are, but but, you know, for lack of better verbs, yelling to the mountaintops across platforms. So that's social media. That's like government agencies. That's like op eds that your great grandma could read. Yeah. Like, you yes. know, like being very intentional uh, about that is, is another tool. Um, another thing I do with the other tools is actually calling out the social determinants of health, because some some things some people may try to um, blame, you know, their diagnosis or et cetera on them as individuals, but we have to consider those other things that are not, are not necessarily be under control. Like I mentioned earlier, such as if you have a job, uh, um, you know, if you have health insurance, um, you know, racism, not race. Um, these are, you know, uh, if you have a social support system, et cetera, these are all things that I try to bring out to, to say that they may be contributing to the disparities we see. And lastly, since justice is what love looks like in public, I aim to employ a justice guided perspective for all the work that I do. And I think you've seen that in the stuff that you've been following. Definitely. You know me. Yeah, definitely. And do you have, um, how do you execute all this like team wise? Like, do you have a certain, like the, the Charles Rogers, uh, squad or like, how does this all get um, done? Or you, do you have to do everything on your own? I absolutely do never, ever do this stuff by myself. Uh, I'm, I'm all about time, team science and collaborating with other rock stars. Um, you know, I have a, a men's health and equities research lab that I think I founded in 2014, where I'm always being intentional about training, you know, diverse and, and transitionary scholars across the country um, to, to help me do this important type of work. But my thing is, in, in you know, me and you have even had conversations I do what I do and you do what you do and we both do it well. So why don't we partner together to make a difference really quickly to do so? Yes. Yeah. And again, I thank you. I thank you for, you know, this relationship and, and allowing me this space to, to be a ally and partner with you to spread the word and, and get some action done here. Um, I wanted to talk about this, what I think of as a great heartbreaking irony. And some of your research has shown us that men who identify as quote unquote strong are the least likely to get cancer screenings. And if they get diagnosed with cancer, they're also less likely to seek second opinions or get help for mental health problems. So all of this puts those men who those strong self-identified strong men 
at higher risk to die from cancer and to not be around to care for their families. So, so the men who think of themselves as strong are actually behaving in a way that makes them vulnerable. Clearly, like that's not intentional. They would never want that. But this is the same exact barrier that I'm confronting in my advocacy work with Man Up to Cancer is the, sometimes these macho men <laughs> who want to be providers and who want to be around a long time are often the ones that don't make it. So I wanted you to comment a little bit, if you would, about your experience with that phenomenon. Yeah, that's a that's a great you know, layered question, Trevor. So like with colon cancer, CRC, we have to, we have to normalize it. Like in terms of like, it has to be something that we just talk about, just like we talk about sports, we have to be able to talk about CRC. Just like we know that pink is the color for CR, for breast cancer in the month of October. Right. We need to know that blue is the color for CRC in the month of March. Love it. You know? Um, and so like, we have to be really intentional about making it a normal conversation and something that's also critical, especially considering the things I mentioned earlier about it being a leading cancer killer, you know, for those, you know, 49 and younger or, or so by 2030. Um, and so with me in terms of how I've tried to overcome that, you know, one of my big studies I, I, I have is my cutting CRC study, which is like cutting hair, which focuses yeah. on developing a barbershop based intervention on masculinity barriers to medical care among African-American men in Utah, Ohio, and Minnesota, you know, um, you know, and, and so with this work, it has various stages. The first stage was really focused on, you know, developing basically a masculinity barriers to medical care scale. And so with that, as you sort of mentioned, there's these constructs. And so one is like the, the focus on the provider role, the male focus on being a provider for the family. Another would be medical mistrust, because that's something that I've seen that has been very rampant. Yes. Um, there's a piece in terms of um, uh, the, the the sexual orientation discomfort that comes from men, for example, below the waist is something to consider. Um, relying on ourselves to make health decisions and, you know, and some other factors um, that are there. So that was the first piece. And then from there, I actually, you know, um, as you're aware, Trevor, I actually partnered with early onset survivors to give me feedback on my work, um, not only for cutting CRC, but as well as my IBCRC project, which is focused on increasing awareness of early onset through like media campaigns, identifying hotspots in other places, more granular, et cetera. Um, but with um, that, um, the, the survivors really increased the validity of the scale. And then even from there, I got expert item review by two leaders in Black Men's Health, as well as a leader in survey research to do that. So that's like first phase. Second phase, yeah, yeah. hopefully people aren't, aren't, aren't asleep yet. No, with no, the second this is phase, good stuff. You go. With the, with the second phase, the idea was to employ that scale with my previous work looking at psychosocial factors that I mentioned earlier, such as education, in terms of knowledge specifically, social support, attitudes, et cetera, to, to have men take the survey on their phones when they're in the barbershop. Well, you know, black people actually outpace everyone else in terms of using smartphones. So this sounds like a pretty cool idea where, you know, um, with barbershops, barbers tend to have an average relationship of their client with their client of, you know, about eight years. So they're really, really cool with them. And so that's a place where, you know, men can go be themselves, talk about colon cancer, yeah. make jokes about it, but they yeah. get the point across, et cetera. But then COVID came and COVID said, <laughs> no one's going anywhere except home. If you go outside, you, you may die. Um, and so I had to get a little more creative. And so I actually expanded my work to reach not only black men, but white and indigenous men across the country, too. And even right now, we've just finished up looking at um, and we haven't analyzed it yet, but we're working on that now in terms of looking at this work 
uh, my work comparing to the machismo literature among Latinos, uh, Latino men in New York, Texas and, and Florida. So be on the lookout for that. Um, but then so we're now really focused on this third phase, which is actually trying to find a way that's sustainable to go through barbershops to try to intervene on these masculinity barriers to medical care that I mentioned previously. So it's like you, you've taken something that's been in my brain for a long time, like this this idea, which is the, the, the tougher a guy perceives himself to be like, I'll be I'll be talking to some tough, quote unquote, tough guy. And, you know, and and. He might mention in the course of that conversation, like, I don't need to, you know, I don't need to get go to a doctor. I don't need to get screened. Like, I'm, I'm healthy as you know what. Like, I, I'm invincible, man. Like, nothing's gonna harm me. Like, it, it, it would seem that that's like almost insurmountable, like culturally. But, but I don't think it is. And you don't, and I'm sure you don't think it is. But it's gonna, it takes that intentional effort to, like, someday. My hope is that those guys will be like, yeah, I, I just, uh, I just benched four hundred. I just, uh, you know, did a tough, did a, did whatever, like a big obstacle race. And by the way, I, I, uh, yeah, I did my colonoscopy because I want to make sure I'm around for my kids. Like that's, that's what I want to incorporate in the, the tough guys, um, definition. And, and I, you know, so what do you think on like, is it possible to change these guys' minds in time and, and how do you, how do we do it? Yeah. I, I think, I think what you, you know, even with your, you know, with, with your, um, I don't know if you want to call it a program or, Call to action, uh, community, yeah. You know, in terms of like man up to cancer, that's a huge start. Like just making a safe place for guys to to talk about these tough issues is a game changer. Um, you know, like we're just used to being, you know, long wolves and like that's something that you are not. You're about, you know, even with the the past, I can't I guess I shouldn't say the password because somebody may just come on, but you got a password <laughs> that relates to being as a group that is very key with anything. If you know we as I mentioned earlier with social support, if someone close to you is support certain behavior, more likely you'll do it. So getting more intentional about um, bringing guys together to talk about these tough things, whether it be racial injustice in America or Colorado cancer screening, those are those are definitely key game changes that we can consider. Another key thing I think, Trevor, that we can do in terms of changing the culture is that, like I mentioned earlier, we have to change the narrative. But unfortunately, I don't think that the, the narrative for the culture starts to shift until somebody famous passes away. So, you know, when Chadwick Boseman yes, died, yeah. everybody's talking about it, you know? Like, it, that shouldn't have to happen. Oh, man, totally. I just feel like kind of my stomach just turned. It's like, yeah, you're right. You're spot on. Um, have you had some success uh, personally just one-on-one, -on -one, just reaching guys who maybe were resistant or, or thinking that taking care of – being proactive around your health, guys who think that that's, you know, something – like that's a weakness or, or getting help is a weakness. Have you had any personal success with kind of changing guys' mindsets around that where they're coming to you and be like, you know what? I'm, I'm taking charge of my health now, Dr. Rogers. Yeah. I would say that's 98% of the time that happens to me. <laughs> and that's because when I come to them, I come to them as Charles, who is a thought leader as Dr. Rogers. And I just keep it real. And I'd be like, you know, like I give them the facts. I talk about you know, the, the, the changes in the screening age. I talk about how they have a high chance of getting in and dying from compared to everyone else. And then, you know, I talk about people that they know, like, you know, they know Chadwick more recently that may not have, you know, they may have known about, um, you know, um, you know, uh, one of the guys from I Love New York reality TV show in 2009, right. who, you know, died from CRC. Like I knew him personally. I had a cell phone number. We were talking about working together. They may know him. Um, as well as many other individuals who, you know, are unsung heroes in this space that have really spoken out about this to try to bring attention to it. 
Um, so yeah, I've been very successful because I just keep it real and I let them know that I come to them first as a concerned black guy that regardless of what you look like, I'm giving you facts about how this is something that can save your life. Like CRC is is the only preventable cancer. I'm pretty I'm pretty sure of that. Don't quote me, but I'm pretty sure it is. Yeah. And like that's that's a win. That's a win. You can't do that with other cancers. Yeah, hundred percent, man. So I think probably we have a probably in some social circumstances we have a, a similar thing that happens to us where we walk into a room of people and they look back and they're like, oh no, we're gonna hear about colorectal cancer. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. People know from me for the month of March. That's all you'll see on my socials. For sure. They're like, Trevor, we've heard it. Yeah, I get it. (laughs) Right. But the thing is, that actually changes people's lives because some people need that repetition. And so then, like, you know, that that happens because even people that have been in my lab, because they work with me, they're more aware about the disparities and the problems itself, such that they've shared it with their family members who haven't been screened in 10 years. And then they get screened because that person who's close to them and cares about them has told them like, hey, hey, dad, this or hey, uncle, such and such. And that's a game changer, you know? Yeah, absolutely. And, And my whole thing is like, I don't want anyone to go through what I've gone through over the past four years. So this week is actually my four-year cancerversary, you know, and tons of surgeries, immunotherapy, chemotherapy, the emotional distress, like this four years has been, I don't want anyone to go through that. Like I want it, like you said, it is preventable, but you got to take control of your health. You got to be your own best advocate. You need to get screened, all those things. So, so if people get sick of me, uh, you know, hammering this nail, I'm always going to do it for as long as I have on this earth and unfollow me right now. If, if you don't want to hear it. <laughs> <laughs> So awesome. Let's, I think we're getting close to the, to wrapping it up here, but I want to give people a chance to learn about your work, to get engaged. Let's say people listening are just learning about these issues and they want to follow you or get involved with your, the work that you're doing. Is there a single point of entry for how they can learn more or a couple places? What, what should we put out there for links or how, how do people get involved? Yeah, so there's various routes um, that we can that you can you know connect with me to make a difference. So one, you can collaborate with me as I think if already seen a theme is there um, in terms of us making a difference. Another route you can donate to the uh, Colorado Cancer Equity Foundation, crcequity.org. You can follow and amplify my work, and you can also learn more about me at crrogersphd.com. So crrogersphd.com is is your kind of the, your personal home base where people can learn about all of your projects and, and what you yeah, do. Yeah, learn about everything. Social media channels, everything is there. And then the foundation, again, can, what was that um, site? crcequity.org. crcequity.org. I encourage everyone listening to this, check it out, pass it on. Um, we're getting real close to the gauntlet of random questions. You may have thought you were going to escape from it, Dr. Charles Rogers, but there is no escape. I'm ready. For, I don't think you're ready, but I'm ready to give you the questions. I don't, I don't, I don't think I am. Um, but before we do that, is there, has this conversation sparked anything or was there anything else on your mind or list that you really wanted to say before we put you on the hot seat? Um, nope. That if you didn't know that CRC is preventable, beatable and treatable with early detection and and like, it's no longer old person disease and it's, it's literally a disease that no one has a die from. And so like help me help Trevor, help so many others. And I like make this the normal conversation. Like, yeah, that's what I got. Thank you. Oh man, that is good stuff. It's my uh, this is like my third goosebumps moment of the uh, conversation. So I always love doing this, man. This is awesome. 
All right, it's time. The gauntlet of random questions for Dr. Rogers. You have your own late night talk show. Who uh, does Charles Rogers invite as your very first guest? This can be actually historical figure or current figure. Wow. And you guys that are listening, you can't, I'm on Zoom with him right now and I can see his like, there's steam coming out of his ears right now because he's got so many people. <laughs> yeah, so I, I, would, I would invite the spirit of Chadwick Boseman. Oh my God, man. I would invite him to like, and us to have a candid conversation about why he kept it secret. And even, I think we all can even see that people look at you differently when you have a, you know, a cancer diagnosis. That's right. I would, I would invite him to, to talk more about how, um, you know, the disparities are there that like, unfortunately didn't get more attention until he passed away. I, I would talk about how, um, you know, you know, insight that he would have shared for, with, for individuals younger than the previously recommended screen at age of 50 today. In terms of like things that he may have did differently, you know, if he had the time, he wasn't shooting, being key star in numerous movies to like try to change policy about like, you know, say we are at the screen at age of 45. Will he have been an individual to say like because of my diagnosis at roughly, you know, in no, no, you know, high 30s, should people be getting screened in their 20s? And I know people personally that, you know, that are got, you know, screening in their 20s, regardless if they've been not having the things that are increasing their risk, like they're extremely healthy, just ran a marathon, et cetera. Uh, like I, that, that would definitely would have been my, my, my guess for that show. I can't think of a more impactful answer that I've ever heard in 60 episodes or however many I've been doing this show. So thank you for that. Absolutely spot on. I'm going to probably take you into some lighter territory here. Um, would Charles rather watch nothing but Hallmark Christmas movies or nothing but horror movies? Oh, I would say horror. <laughs> Definitely horror movies. My wife doesn't like horror movies, though, so I would probably have to weave some of the Christmas in there. Uh, but I'm definitely the horror person with some great nom nom nom, a.k.a. food and ice cream. Perfect. I wouldn't be able to stomach the Hallmark marathon either. All right. Uh, what actor is going to play you in the movie that comes out about your life which i hope oh, you i hope you have to get done it's got oh yeah it's gotta be denzel <laughs> denzel doesn't play any you know what I'm saying like he can shave his head look close to me put on some glasses and you know he's all he's always rubbing his hands and i don't rub my hands but he, he's welcome to rub his hands in my in my biopic Dude, but definitely denzel what the heck though like no offense to to denzel but you're a young man like okay maybe like a, if we could do a young denzel and again i'm not calling him old but i'm just saying <laughs> He's just he's just he's just top chef acting like he he does like he does does not have any movies where he's missed. That's fair. You know? That's fair. So it's like, no, it's like with me, be, with, with me being a person who works in the spirit of excellence, I would like the actor to be the same thing. I cannot dispute that. So good call. Um, awesome. All right. Last one. I'm going to bring you into the fiercest debate in cancer land, which is That's roiling so in the howling place, which is pineapple on pizza. Yes or no. There is no middle ground. Yes. Absolutely. I thought we were friends. <laughs> <laughs> so you're against pineapple pizza? I love pineapple, but I I am a traditionalist when it comes to my pizza. I don't think it belongs there. Uh, so this is something, you know, this is the hill I'm going to die on. But see, see, this is what you have to do. The, the thing with the pineapple is you used to pineapple not being warm. So you have to get the pizza that has pineapple and put it in the fridge. And then if you're one of these people on the fence, you eat it cold 
And then I think you'll be, but you have to be good. It has to be, because you know, first of all, all pizza can't be eaten cold. That's fair. So it has to be quality pizza to be cold. And then you have it with the pineapple and then you should try it. It may change your life. There might, you might be the one person who could convince me to make this happen. We are having the gathering of the wolves uh, for members of our Man Up to Cancer group uh, this September. And I'm going to think on this real hard because, you know, I have a lot ton of respect for you. And if you're telling me try it with the cold, I might have to just do that at the gathering. I might have to make a spectacle of this. Maybe turn it into a fundraiser. I might turn it into a fundraiser for your foundation. <laughs> I like yeah. it. I like it. I like it. Let me. We, we will buy the pizza. <laughs> All right, man. Um, this has just been awesome. I think it's going to open some eyes. I think these just, just even if people go back and listen to the first five minutes here, you're going to find some facts that I think people are just often not aware of, especially in white America. So this is amazing. Check out your, check out Dr. Rogers's work and pitch in and, and just, it starts with knowledge and that's where I feel like you are just making such an impact. Um, so again, I, I'm a huge fan. I hope to have you back at some point when we can talk about other stuff down the road. Um, and I hope you had a good time on the show. I did. I did. Thank you so much for having me and keep up the great work that you're doing. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the man up to cancer podcast. If you want to support our mission, visit patreon.com backslash man up to cancer. Monthly subscriptions start at five bucks, less than a single cup of coffee at some establishments. And if you know a man struggling with the isolation that cancer can bring, let him know about us. The Wolfpack doors are always open. 